0: Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira McLean, back feeling refreshed after a wonderful holiday, and I'm joined by my compadre, Sean Feig. Hi,
1: Moira. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I've got takes as hot as the weather.
0: We'll be able to say that on year, on year, on year, as the temperature keeps increasing. Did you know it's the hottest year on record, as will be next year and the year after? Other stories we'll be discussing tonight include abortion law in the UK and the fight to potentially decriminalise abortions. Plus, the activists that blocked a deportation flight have just been acquitted. We'll be talking to one of them. And why Nadine Doris is still an MP, despite saying she'd resign with immediate effect last week. Let's go to our first story. Boris Johnson is a liar. We all knew it already, but now it's been officially confirmed by the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, who today published their long-awaited report into Johnson's conduct over lockdown parties. And boy, oh boy, it is damning. The committee was investigating whether Johnson misled the House when he made these statements.
2: Mr. Speaker, uh, what I can tell the Right Honourable Gentleman is that that all guidance was followed uh, completely during Number 10. Will the Prime Minister tell the House whether there was a party in Downing
3: Street on the 13th of November?
2: Prime Minister... Mr. Speaker, no, but I'm sure that it, and it, whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But, Mr. Speaker, with hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall, within the guidance. There would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way. I'm happy to set on the record now that when I said, I came to this house and said in all sincerity that the rules and guidance would be followed uh, at all times, it was what I believed to be true. It was certainly the case when I was present at gatherings to wish staff farewell And the House will note that my attendance at these moments, brief as it was, has not been found to be outside the rules.
0: Fun little fact, the quote where he says implicitly believed it was a work event is one that I like to sample regularly when I'm DJing. And according to the committee, each of those clips that you just watched was an instance where Boris Johnson intentionally misled the house. These conclusions are, in part, based on new evidence that we haven't seen before. Some of it reveals just how entrenched and how visible the rule-breaking culture in Downing Street was, like this account submitted by a staffer inside Number 10. I was the redacted, which had the press office, press spad office, and a vestibule connecting all three rooms together. The vestibule was a common area for meetings and gatherings, which had been a place of meeting well before I started in 2018. This is where Wine Time Fridays took place. These were calendared weekly weekly events in our Outlook diaries, starting at 4pm, where press officers would gather on Fridays to have drinks. During the pandemic, Number 10, despite setting rules to the country, was slow to enforce any rules in the building. The press office wine time Fridays continued throughout. Social distancing was not enforced and mask wearing was not enforced. I once inquired to Redacted in March 2020, Redacted, whether we should be wearing masks and was told that the science advice was that there was, quote, no point and had, quote, very little effect on the spread of COVID. This was all part of a wider culture of not adhering to any rules. Number 10 was like an island oasis of normality. Operational notes were sent out from the security team to be mindful of the cameras outside the door, not to go out in groups and to social distance. It was all a pantomime. Birthday parties, leaving parties and end-of-week gatherings all continued as normal, those responsible for the leadership of Number 10 failed to keep it a safe space and should have set rules from the start that these gatherings should not continue. It was only more than a year into the pandemic that Number 10 set up a one way system and desk divider screens. Just note that SPAD means special advisors for those of you who might not be au fait with the interior lobby lingo. Now, the committee also found Johnson guilty of, quote, committing a serious contempt. That is, as the name suggests, a more serious charge. Erskine May, the 19th century parliamentary clerk who wrote the rulebook for parliamentary procedure, defined it like this. Any act or omission which obstructs or impedes either the House of Parliament in the performance of its functions, or which obstructs or impedes any member or officer of such House in the discharge of their duty, or which has a tendency directly or indirectly to produce such results, may be treated as a contempt even though there is no precedent of the offence. God, people writing regulations love to use commas. Now, in the report, the committee say this. We have no difficulty in concluding that Mr. Johnson's misleading of the House has, quote, obstructed or impeded the House in the performance of its functions. A core function of the House is scrutiny of the executive. A minister who gives the House false information from the dispatch box is impeding its ability to carry out its essential task. Scrutiny. As the clerk of the journals notes, quote, misstatements by ministers are inherently likely to obstruct or impede the House. Misstatements by the Prime Minister at the apex of the governmental system are even more likely to do so. His personal knowledge of breaches of the rules and guidance combined with his repeated failures proactively to investigate and seek authoritative assurances as to compliance issues amount to the deliberate closing of his mind or at least reckless behaviour. We find it highly unlikely that Mr Johnson having given any reflection to these matters could himself have believed the assertions he made to the house at the time when he was making them still less that he could continue to believe them to this day. Someone who is repeatedly reckless and continues to deny that which is patent is a person whose conduct is sufficient to demonstrate intent. Many aspects of Mr Johnson's defence are not credible. Taken together, they form sufficient basis for a conclusion that he intended to mislead. We conclude that in deliberately misleading the House, Mr Johnson committed a serious contempt. Too Long didn't read, they're calling bullshit. But that's not the end of it. Not even close. Before publishing the report, the committee sent Johnson a confidential letter laying out their findings and the sanction they were going to impose. That led to the bombshell Johnson dropped last week where he resigned as an MP and released a statement containing these remarks. I have received a letter from the Privileges Committee making it clear, much to my amazement, that they are determined to use the proceedings against me to drive me out of Parliament. They have still not produced a shred of evidence that I knowingly or recklessly misled the Commons. Most members of the committee, especially the chair, had already expressed deeply prejudicial remarks about my guilt before they had even seen the evidence. They should have recused themselves. The committee's report is riddled with inaccuracies and reeks of prejudice, but under their absurd and unjust process, I have no formal ability to challenge anything they say. They should not be using their powers, which have only been very recently designed, to mount what is plainly a political hit job on someone they oppose. If everyone who thought that Boris Johnson was a liar accused themselves from Parliament, I think there would only be Nadine Doris left on the committee. As a result of that statement, the committee also found that Johnson has breached confidentiality and that he had quote. In Punge, the committee. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it gets worse. The report also says this Each of the committee's members were appointed to the committee by the House without division. Each member had done their duty on the behalf of the House. Despite this, from the outset of this inquiry, there has been a sustained attempt, seemingly coordinated, to undermine the committee's credibility and, more worryingly, that of those members serving on it. We note that Mr. Johnson at no point denounced this campaign while it was underway. Notwithstanding his earlier protestations of respect for the committee and his earlier depreciation of language such as, quote, kangaroo courts and witch hunts, we note that in his statement of the 9th of June, Mr. Johnson himself used precisely those abusive terms to describe the committee. This leaves us in no doubt that he was insincere in his attempts to distance himself from the campaign of abuse and intimidation of committee members. This, in our view, constitutes a further significant contempt. Now, because Johnson jumped the gun and already resigned as an MP, the committee can't really impose a sanction – And if he hadn't made those resignation statements, the FT reports that his suspension would likely have only been between 10 and 20 days. But because of those attacks on the committee and the parliamentary process, the report also reveals that if he hadn't resigned, they would have suspended him from the commons for 90 days. That's longer than Jesus was in the desert. That would have been likely to trigger a by-election in his constituency of Uxbridge and South Worslip. Despite the fact he's already gone, they did manage to suggest one punishment that might still affect Johnson. Most former MPs are given a life pass to the House of Commons and its perks, which include many, many bars. But the committee has recommended that Johnson be denied this privilege. What's more important than the punishment, though, is history. Johnson is the only Prime Minister ever, ever, to have been found guilty of misleading Parliament. His legacy, from world king... To in the bin, can't even get on the parliamentary estate. Sean, we've got lots more on this story for our sins, but for now, let us take a breath. What's your initial reaction to the committee's findings?
1: My initial reaction really is that like, I mean, I'm obviously not surprised by the substance of it, which the substance of it being that Boris Johnson is a liar. I feel somewhat exasperated, as I'm sure many people do, about the fact that this is sure, it's it's a it's a sort of conclusion by an authoritative body but of something that like i think many of us knew for many years i mean it's him being caught out in one final lie amongst a career of lies obviously in this case misleading parliament undoubtedly like a serious offence but the ways in which he's misled the electorate time and time and time again talking right back to you know vote leave the fact that this is someone that has evaded accountability like sure he's had some form of public accountability now and of course run from it but this is a man who hid in a fridge who hid in a fridge um so the fact that he like jumped before we could push be pushed here um isn't surprising and also you know i think it's worth saying like sure that we have to sort of uh trust that history will now now judge him but you know if we're talking about actual sanctions right okay he's not allowed on the parliamentary state of free pass but like in reality this is a man that will just probably go back to like a a life of immense privilege and wealth and considering the implications of the way in which he deceived both parliament and the public throughout the pandemic it's not that much of a punishment really is it
0: no i think that's a really good point it's worth noting that boris johnson has declared over one million pounds in speakers fees at the end of 2022 and i imagine he will get lots more when the biographies soon to be coming memoirs all of that he's going to be raking it in there was some reports that he's going to go back to journalism Sure, we definitely need him over here. Uh, The committee's report, though, will still have to be ratified by Parliament, and in theory, MPs can amend it or even reject it. That creates trouble for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who may find himself with an even larger rift in his party if Johnson's allies refuse to accept it. The vote will take place in Parliament on Monday, which, incidentally, is Johnson's 59th birthday, a Gemini. Just before the report was released this morning, this was Sunak's response.
2: You're talking about a report that I haven't seen, no one has seen yet. It wouldn't be right to comment on it before that's happened. And these are matters for the House of Commons, and Parliament will deal with them in the normal way that it does.
4: Minister, I appreciate you don't want to talk about it now, but the report's coming out in a few hours' time. We know exactly what it's going to say. You're the Prime Minister, you're the leader of the Conservative Party, we've been talking about it for weeks. Are you willing to do an interview with us once the report is out, once you've had a chance to read it and digest it?
1: I said,
2: you know about a report that I haven't even seen yet, so it's hard for me to comment on it, but we well, are but are, but will you are, talk to us once like you've it. had a chance to Well, what we are doing is having an interview now talking about tackling illegal migration. So
0: you're going to need that stab vest later on. Right, OK, save the jokes for me. Kay Burley there on how things could get very messy for Sunak if Johnson's allies have anything to say about it. And some of those allies of the disgraced former Prime Minister have been saying about it. They've been out and about, venting their feelings. This was Tory MP Brendan Clarke-Smith.
2: I think we're absolutely appalled. This seems very vindictive, very spiteful, and I would say a complete overreach. Now, 90 days in taking somebody's pass off them right, is the equivalent of putting somebody in the stocks and touring them around the country. And I think Boris Johnson, he gave a very good account of himself. He explained a lot of things, but the crystal ball is there, and they could obviously see into his mind and have decided that he's guilty of whatever it is. Uh, no court of law would accept this. And I think when we have these conclusions in front, of us, and when we speak in the House on Monday, I'm certainly going to be voting against it and speaking against it.
0: And Andrew Jenkins, no stranger to contempt herself, posted this on social media. I'm backing Boris. Share to back Boris. Strangely, Nadine Dorries didn't say anything. She maintained a dignified silence. Just kidding. She posted this on social media. This support has overreached and revealed its true predetermined intentions. It's quite bizarre. Harman declared her position before it began. Jenkins, the most senior MP on committee, attended an actual party. Any Conservative MP who would vote for this report is fundamentally not a Conservative and will be held to account by members and the public. Deselections may follow. It's serious. MPs will now have to show this committee what real justice looks like and how it's done. We also need to keep a close eye on the careers of Conservative MPs who sat on that committee. Do they find them, Do they suddenly find themselves on chicken runs into safe seats? Gongs? Were promises made? We need to know if they were. Justice has to be seen to be done at all levels of this process. That's the same Nadine Doris who waited to resign until she was sure that she'd been knocked off the uh, peerage list that Boris Johnson had put up for The platonic bond between Nadine Dorries and Boris Johnson is one that really warms my cockles. It's giving Mary Magdalene. Uh, You might be wondering why Dorries is still not out of Parliament, why she's still hanging around. Well, we will have more on that later. But the committee that she's talking about was chaired by Labour's Harriet Harman, And though four of its seven members were Brexiteer Tories, some Johnson allies are now claiming that Harman should never have been allowed to chair it. This is Jacob Rees-Mogg, the old standard, who seemed to think that the committee should have been led by a unicorn. When it comes to Harriet
5: Harman, you believe that if she had recused herself, the committee would have had more legitimacy? Oh,
4: definitely. If you had found a Labour MP who had made no comment about Boris Johnson, that would have established uh, a committee with considerably more authority.
0: A Labour MP who never made a comment about Boris Johnson. They're literally the opposition. He, he, I'm not taking that man seriously. But there is an important point here. MPs did have an opportunity to vote against Harman's appointment as the chair back in June last year. That was while Johnson was still Prime Minister, so he could have whipped them to vote her down. But he didn't. These bitter Tories better be careful though. That's because in the report, the Privileges Committee included a stark warning to MPs who tried to undermine their work, promising to release a special report to the Commons on attempts at intimidation. I I say drop it, drop that report, I want to see. Other Tories have been positively jubilant at Johnson's evisceration. Former Attorney General Dominic Grieve appeared on Sky to give his view of Johnson.
3: The committee itself uh, making the point that this is unprecedented, that no previous prime minister has been found to be deliberately misleading the House.
5: Uh, Yes, it is completely unprecedented. But then Mr Johnson is a completely unprecedented figure. After all, we know that he's a man who is a serial liar. And he lies not only to protect himself, he also lies to smear other people. I've watched it during the course of his career, and he did it when he was... Prime Minister. So seeing that he did it so routinely and regularly in a number of other settings doesn't really come as a surprise that he lied through his back teeth about the circumstances relating to breaches of the rules in Number 10 Downing Street.
3: Can he come back from this?
5: I hope not. I hope he's gone for good. Uh, The country is much better off without him.
0: Tory MP Caroline Noakes also appeared on Peston before the report was published where she said this. Do
5: you think, um, actually, Caroline, that Boris Johnson has any respect for Parliament?
3: No. I, don't <laughs> I had to think about that, but no, I don't. And I think it's really sad, actually, yeah. because many of us well, work really hard. When I yeah. stood in the election in 2019, I made a commitment yeah. to the people of Romsey and Southampton North that I was going to be there yeah. for the duration, I was going to work hard, do my best to represent so. them, whether they voted for me or not, and we should all be treating our electorate with that level of respect.
4: Now,
0: I'll leave the last word to Boris Johnson himself. Or should I say words? 1,700 of them. That's the length of the furious statement he released when the report was published. Here's a few choice excerpts. It is now many months since people started to warn me about the intentions of the Privileges Committee. They told me it was a kangaroo court. They told me it was being driven relentlessly by the political agenda of Harriet Harman and supplied with skewed legal advice with the sole political objective of finding me guilty and expelling me from Parliament. The committee now says that I deliberately misled the House and at the moment I spoke I was consciously concealing from the House my knowledge of illicit events. This is rubbish. It is a lie. In order to reach this deranged conclusion, the committee is obliged to say a series of things that are patently absurd or contradicted by the facts. This report is a charade. I was wrong to believe in the committee or its good faith. The terrible truth is that it's not I who has twisted the truth to suit my purposes, it is Harriet Harman and her committee. God, he needs an editor. The bit also where he says, it is in order to reach this deranged conclusion, the committee obliged to say a series of things that are patently absurd because he can't say lie twice in two sentences. Oh. (laughs) Sean, is this the end of the Johnson psychodrama?
1: I think he will always be slithering around trying to crawl back into public life in some way. But aside from Boris Johnson, the man himself, I think what we have to move away from is um, the framing of him as an aberration in the same way in the US that it's very convenient to frame Donald Trump as an aberration. Like... Boris Johnson was a creature of a media and political ecosystem that routinely, you know, just as much as he may be very mendacious, he was never held. To account by any of the people that should. He finally has been to somewhat uh, um, some degree by this committee, but he should have been held to account years ago, like years and years and years. And that is because uh, and this remains, even if Boris Johnson is gone, because of the cozy, corrupt relationship between senior political journalists, um, SPADs, Westminster, senior, you know, politicians, some of the people who are still uh in cabinet and uh it's it's a system in which deference is given in exchange for access in which people share social lives familial lives you know mm-hmm. sometimes uh <laughs> dating partners you know the reality is is that this is a corrupt core at the center of our demo- uh, you know democracy our democratic system and it it allowed someone as outrageous and audacious in their lives as Boris Johnson to access and to climb towards power. And actually all of that infrastructure, that rotten infrastructure remains. So while you know, Boris Johnson himself may never quite return to political power in, in, in the way that he, he possessed it when he was prime minister, um, I don't think the psychodrama is over.
0: I totally agree. When Johnson first left office uh, reluctantly, I wrote a piece for Navarre, which Boris Johnson was the ultimate establishment prime minister. He was born of the elite. He's you know through and through. He is a direct product. He's not an aberration, as you rightly point out. We're going to stick with the lockdown era, and I want to turn to a really explosive news story that has been published by Open Democracy. They've revealed that the UK government knew as early as September 2020 that its desire to free up hospital beds in the early stages of the pandemic had been, quote, to the detriment of care homes. These revelations came from a top-secret COVID lessons learned review document that has finally been released after a two-year battle between the Department of Health and the op- and open democracy. Now, the Department of Health has always insisted that they threw a, quote, protective ring around adult social care and specifically sought to safeguard care homes. But, you know, people who lost people in the COVID pandemic have said otherwise. And now this review document casts really serious doubt on the claims by the Department of Health. The report says that there were, quote, glaring emissions in strategic direction of integration and preparedness within the sector. That meant that, quote, the social care system was not able to respond to a major health emergency, And the department also put care home inspections on hold, which, according to the report, removed one of the department's lines of sight into adult social care and limited its direct knowledge of what was happening on the ground. As a reminder of the scale of the problem here, ONS figures show there were over 45,000 deaths associated with COVID in care homes between March 2020 and December 2021. Really horrific time. Sean, do you think the COVID inquiry and stories like this, where you've got, you know, media outlets, such as Open Democracy, not not big ones like The Times, more independent-minded ones, do you think the COVID inquiry will get anything like the attention that Boris Johnson's rule-breaking and that psychodrama we were talking about has received?
1: No. I mean, in general, I think inquiries themselves, I'm a little bit sceptical of, of inquiries. They, uh, I mean, they they obviously take a lot of time and resources and money, but I would say in general, right, inquiries in the UK, more often than not, tend to be whitewashes and often are very muted in their findings compared to um, you know, I think I think Hillsborough is one exception, but like in general, they don't like, you know, or something like Levison where they make recommendations and the recommendations are just ignored. Um I think it won't receive, obviously, the same level of coverage, but it's also about the accountability of by the time that there are any sort of serious findings, who is going to be held responsible? Because, again, this is about accountability, same as um, as with Johnson himself in Parliament, is that we are supposed to have a functioning democracy to avoid corruption. We need balance and checks. And that actually does mean some kind of accountability for when people... Um, you know, make commitments or make false statements in public in their, like, official capacity, you know, and it shouldn't matter that so many years elapse, like, you know, ultimately there should be some kind of accountability, but rarely there is. And as I said, as I was saying before, I think the fact that, like, the media doesn't even take the findings of inquiries and run with them to really, like, hold these people to account is also a problem with, you know, the sort of the role of the media in the UK, too.
0: Totally agree. It reminds me of actually a tweet that I saw earlier today, which said, uh, me in July 2016 reading Chilcot. Well, I guess that's the last we'll be hearing from Blair and Campbell. I think we'll let that speak for itself. Now, we've got way more coming up for you tonight, but first, a quick reminder that absolutely none of what we do here, from my silly little jokes to the really hard-hitting news that we bring you, would be possible without the support of you, our audience, and if you want to support media that's unapologetically honest, you can head to navarramediacom support and donate one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford. The link is in the description box below. We want to keep bringing you this work and scale up. Now let's go on to our next story. On Monday, a woman in England was sentenced to 28 months in prison. Her crime? Aborting a fetus that was past the legal gestation limit of 24 weeks. Now, the 44-year-old at the centre of this case is a Staffordshire mother to three children already, one of whom has special needs. In 2020, she obtained abortion pills via remote consultation as part of a pandemic scheme to enable women to access at-home abortions while in-person care was limited. The fetus was delivered stillborn at between 32 and 34 weeks in May 2020. This woman was then prosecuted under a piece of legislation from the Victorian era because, in the UK, abortion is only fully decriminalised in Northern Ireland. And decriminalisation, for those of you not aware, would mean that although abortion is regulated, breaking those regulations would not come with criminal penalties such as prison. Unsurprisingly, this case has led to a major backlash from across the political spectrum. Calls for legal reform in Britain have united MPs, healthcare campaigners, women's rights campaigners from all sides of the aisle. And on Tuesday, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said he wasn't planning to change the law, but pressure is only growing. This morning, the debate reached the House of Commons with the chair of the Home Affairs Committee, Diana Johnson, asking this urgent question.
3: Earlier this week, a mother of three children was sentenced to a period of imprisonment for ending her pregnancy and was prosecuted under Section 58 of the Offences Against the Persons Act a piece of legislation dating from 1861, which carries a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Ridiculous. This case was desperately sad and thankfully rare, yeah. and it has been de- debated widely in the media and throws up important questions that merit an open debate in a healthy democracy. Crucially, though, it throws a spotlight on our antiquated abortion laws, and government and parliament must look at this outdated legislation and make it fit for the 21st century. Can I therefore ask the minister the following questions? How does the government deal with the fact that women in Northern Ireland have already been removed from the criminal justice system, with a vote in this parliament On the 9th of July, 2019, the Offences Against the Persons Act provisions no longer apply in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And there is a moratorium on abortion-related criminal prosecutions. So women in one part of the United Kingdom are treated differently yeah. than in another part in relation to the criminal law that cannot be right secondly what is the view of the government on the statement from leading medical bodies including the royal college of obstetricians and gynaecologists and the royal college of midwives who have raised concerns about the chilling effect of the current legal position and the custodial sentence in this case which they say may signal to other women who access telemedical abortion services or who experience later gestation deliveries, that they risk imprisonment if Mm. they seek medical care. And finally, as we know, decriminalisation does not mean deregulation, and time limits would still apply. Has the government undertaken any review of the necessary regulations that would be required if the criminal law was removed from this area of healthcare law in England and Wales? And has the government engaged with the Royal Colleges and Professor Dame Leslie Regan, the Women's Health Ambassador, about establishing a new regulatory regime for abortion that does not involve putting women in prison.
0: Responding to that on behalf of the government was Justice Minister Edward Arger.
5: In terms of changes, the long-standing position remains that it is for this House to seek to make changes, if it so wishes, but not for the government. As I said, any such vote would be... Um, in normal process, a free vote and would be brought for this House in the context of private members' bill or similar, or perhaps a dexterous amendment, which I know some honourable members opposite are not averse to, uh, to doing successfully. Um, in terms of, um, the difference between Northern Ireland and England and Wales, of course, that was a decision made by this House knowing there would be a difference following that. And the House did that cognizant of the fact that there would therefore be different, um, regimes. And again, we respect the will of the House in that respect. Um, In terms of the sentences and the view on the sentences, again, that's a matter for the courts. Parliament has set the sentence, as she said, the maximum sentence at life imprisonment. It is open to Parliament to change that if it's so wished, but the courts have to apply the law as set by this House or a previous House many, many decades ago. Um, To her final point about uh, this, it would not be about deregulation. accept her point, and I heard her on the radio a few days ago, I think, making that point very, very clearly and seeking to frame this in the context of a public health or a health context rather than a criminal context. Um, Again, that is a matter for this House, not for the government, but I would say two final things on that. First of all, in terms of working around regulation with the Royal Colleges and others, I'm not aware of any specific conversations that the government has had with them in that uh, respect. But were Parliament to uh, show its will and seek to change the law, the government would, of course, then work to implement the will of Parliament effectively and efficiently.
0: Hmm. Not a matter for government, but a matter for Parliament. Okay. Meanwhile, in the Lords, Baroness Sugg, a Tory peer was also asking about buffer zones around abortion clinics.
3: My Lords, the facts of this case are extremely distressing and highlight the need to continue to work to ensure that women, particularly vulnerable women, can access abortion as early and as safely as possible. My Lords, we have made recent progress in this area, ensuring the introduction of safe access zones, which were supported by your Lordships in the Public Order Bill. I appreciate that their implementation may be complicated, and I'm grateful to the government and the civil servants for their work on this. But can my neighbour friend, the Minister, tell me when they will be introduced?
2: First of all, my Lords, I'm grateful to my noble friend uh, for her courtesy in giving me advance notice of the point that she wished to raise. Uh, My Lords, it's completely unacceptable that anyone should feel harassed or intimidated. Uh, The police and local authorities have powers to restrict harmful protests, and we expect them to take action in such cases. Uh, I cannot answer my noble friend with a specific date. Uh, But I can tell her that we are currently working through the complexities of implementing border zones and that uh, my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, uh, yesterday speaking to the Home Affairs Select Committee undertook uh, to write to them in order to um, bring them fully up to date on the point raised.
0: So... No answer forthcoming on legislation passed in March, but instead a nod to those anti protest laws that came into effect immediately when they passed in May. Remember how those powers were rushed through specifically for King Charles's coronation? The laws to protect people seeking abortions from harassment still remain unenforced. And abortion itself is still criminalised if it falls outside the legal stipulations that were decided way back in 1967. That is over half a century since our abortion laws were updated. Do you know what else? was around in 1967. Racial discrimination was still legal. We didn't have a Human Rights Act. Homosexuality wasn't fully legalized. Is it not time to update the law pertaining to abortion? Sean, what do you see as the key point in this abortion case? The key point really is
1: whether or not you treat abortion as a health issue, like every other health issue in which like someone, someone consults with their doctor about a health outcome that you know, that they want and the like the potential implications of that for that person and their health with a doctor, or you treat it as a criminal issue. And of course, a criminal issue is about treating something as a moral issue. It's saying actually abortion is not just, does not just concern the pregnant woman and um the fetus the fetus and the doctor. It actually concerns society at large. That's what criminal law says, you know, like what what we have with the Offense Against the Persons Act is that um, an abortion that isn't procured under the terms of the Abortion Act is actually an offence against the crown, is against, against society. That, to me, is ridiculous. And of course, it needs to change. It is a health issue. It is with regards, you know, the mother and the mother's body. As long as the um, fetus is inside a mother's body, then it's about her decision about um, autonomy over her body.
0: A lot of discussion around this case has rested on it being a late-term abortion. Why is this term so emotive?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's been floated around a lot. And it was only this week that I discovered that, in fact, it's not like a medical term. A lot of it is, um comes from right-wing media. The um, writer and influencer Shantae Joseph posted on her Instagram quite a lot of uh, materials about this and the fact that late-term abortion has been used deliberately by, um, you know, Right-wing, so to say pro-life, but pro-pro um, anti-abortion campaigners in the U.S. and of course, like the term "late" is sort of like is designed again to sort of subtly imply a moral judgment. I think what we have to sort of say here, right, is that people are going to have a spectrum views about what makes them bristle what makes them feel comfortable the reality is is that clearly a lot of people you only needed to see social media a lot of the debate that's been going on in mainstream media some people were uncomfortable with this particular case and the stage at which the abortion took place you're entitled to those feelings however it's again it comes down to whether or not pro-choice is pro-choice for everyone it's someone's choice to make a decision you don't like it's actually also about their choice to make a decision they may regret. And I think we sometimes forget that too. And so for me, this kind of, um, this, this term is a motive because people have strong emotions. They project a lot when they hear about someone else's pregnancy, someone else's body. But the reality is, is we need to be moving more to a position, I believe, of kind of like, if it's not your pregnancy or your body, it's kind of none of your business unless you're the doctor.
0: Now, we have some rare good news next in our upcoming story. So let's celebrate. Three activists who blocked a road in order to stop a deportation flight to Jamaica in 2021 have been acquitted by a jury in Lewis. Known as the Brookhouse Three, the trio were found not guilty on charges of public nuisance on Tuesday after a two week trial. The verdict is being hailed as a victory while the government insists on ramping up sanctions against protesters we see protesters being acquitted. Now, as I said, the initial demonstration took place in November 2021. Reevka Micklethwaite, Callum Lynch and Griff Ferris locked themselves together with metal tubing to block the road to Brookhouse Immigration Centre, which is near Gatwick Airport. They told the court in their defence that they wanted to prevent people from being forcibly removed from the UK and give enough time to detainees to access adequate legal representation all but four people who were scheduled for deportation on the flight those activist targets were in fact later removed from it. Now at the outset of this trial Griff Ferris wrote for Navarra Media on the hefty charges the Crown Prosecution Services were leveling against the Brookhouse 3. At the time he warned that though the CPS itself is supposedly neutral its rabid pursuit of protesters like me has been enabled by a raft of authoritarian anti-protest laws written by Tory politicians. Griff joins me now to disgru- discuss the verdict. Griff, first things first, did you actually expect to be acquitted in this climate?
6: Um, it, I mean, it was impossible to know. We did think the case against us was weak. Um, they were like significantly overcharging us. They'd originally charged us with a much less serious offence and then a few months later they charged us with a much more serious offence, public nuisance. Um... But, you know, it was it was really just impossible to know, given kind of the political climate. You know, it all depends, ultimately, much of it depends on the judge, on the jury, um, who they are, what they know, what they think, um, and whether we were able to kind of convince them um, about why we did it and the reasons behind it.
0: Yeah, on that, the government obviously is trying to wage war on protest and get the public to join in. Does the jury's verdict in your case counteract this narrative of protesters versus everyone else?
6: Yeah, well, I think it shows that if you give people, like, enough information um, in in a very, like, limited, specific set of circumstances, they were basically, you know, the 12 men and women on the jury, they were forcibly, basically, like, had to go to court every day and listen to us, listen to our legal arguments, listen to the reasons why we did it, Um, you know, I think it shows that in that limited set of circumstances, you are able to convince people, but, you know, we had a lot of things in our favor. Um, you know, the deportations to Jamaica is a very emotive example. There were people on the flight with Windrush connections. Um, there's the kind of, you know, uh, difficult and strange, but like ultimately quite strong, like colonial bond that some people think, even if that's tied up with, uh, strange ideas, uncomfortable ideas around empire and racism. Um, where we were actually being tried in, in Lewis is a really mixed political area. has a Tory MP, but there's a big anti-authority uh, history there. Um, I mean, it does seem very much like some of the public seem to hate climate protesters, or at least they're being told by the media to hate climate protesters, um, or generally people who are causing disruption um, for the sake of raising attention. Um and like no shade to that form of protest. It's a very legitimate form of protest, but what we were doing was a very kind of specific limited action to block a private road at Gatwick to prevent deportations. So I think we were able to kind of give reasons for why we did what we did. Um, you know, very much drawing on the people that were meant to be on the flight talking about who they were, um the fact that they had children in this country, the fact that they many of them came here as children, that some of them had windrush connections. Um you know, we were able to like draw on those like, you know, very real and truthful, but emotive reasons for why we did what we did. And um, it seems that that was enough to, to convince the jury.
0: That's such a really good point about, you know, climate protest. Was there anything that you noticed throughout your trial that made you think that some causes are seen as more sympathetic than others or in the protesting experience itself?
6: Well, I think so. Maybe not so much the cause, but like the specific action. So we, yeah, we targeted this quiet road. Um, it wasn't intended to cause any disruption. Um, you know, there were a few, like, like a, a like very small number of vehicles that were slightly inconvenienced for a bit. But our main aim was to block the coaches, the big coaches, from leaving Brookhouse Detention Centre. Um, not like any other cars, people were able to walk by. Um, so I think that, as compared to Protests which are specifically trying to cause disruption to kind of focus attention on the issue—they um, are different. Like they're both very legitimate forms of protest, um, but they are different. And it seems that you know people have been really whipped up against protesters who seek to cause disruption. The problem is that all protest is disruptive. You know, if you're not causing disruption, you know what what are you actually doing? You know, if you're doing what the law says, if you're listening to what the police say, you know, if you if you're doing this, you know, the idea of lawful protest is so narrow now that if you're not causing disruption, I'm not even sure that it is a protest. And it's certainly not, I think, that the issue we were kind of um, taking action on is sympathetic, you know, it's about immigration, which has been, you know, whipped up into a fervor. I mean, it's never been good in this country, but it's been particularly whipped up into a fervor over the last few years, kind of after the the grim Brexit debate um, by the kind of like the casual dehumanizing racism by the Home Secretary and others in government you know it, it, migration um detention and deportations it's a huge moral panic um, but i think maybe it's more that the the type of action we did was viewed more uh, more sympathetically
0: there's also a really pertinent observation you made there which is that you know protest is being ever more constrained and anti-protest sentiment is being whipped up were there any key lessons that you learned about getting the public on side during your trial that perhaps the left could further learn from you know what? Did what does the Brookhouse Three have in terms of strategy that we can take further?
6: We did a very targeted action, and we tried to communicate that to people that what we did was ultimately a uh, an action of last resort. It was direct action. Um, you know, as they say, direct action gets the goods when there are no avenues left. Um, but we were able to kind of we had two, two almost two and a half weeks with the jury, what? and they had to sit there and listen to us. Like I gave evidence for, for several hours. Talking about the detention and deportation regime, and and you know my um, co-defendants also gave evidence for hours as well. We all went into detail about the detention and deportation regime, how violent it is, how it's led to like serious harm, injury, and and, and deaths. We talked about Brook House and the violence um, and the dehumanisation by security guards of detainees there. Um, you know we were able to paint a pretty graphic picture to the jury about the you know the the, the grim detention deportation regime and why we were intervening to try and stop it. Um, And we were able to convince them, you know, we also had great lawyers who did an amazing job, um, you know, and I don't want to get too overexcited because it should be acknowledged that we are also very privileged in many ways. You know, all white defendants, we did have an all white jury and we were nervous about that. Um, But, you know, um, people of color or black defendants might have been treated, would very likely have been treated much worse and with more suspicion. we're also kind of lucky or privileged in that we were able to speak, like, in a lot of detail about these issues because many of us work um, either in these, in and around migration, criminal justice, policing. So we we're able to, you know, speak in detail about the issues. Um, some of us even knew the law involved. Um, so I mean, all of those things, I guess, they did add up to be able to counter those mainstream racist narratives around migration, around detention and deportations. Um, Um, But I mean, yeah, I don't know how often you get to lock 12 Daily Mail readers in a room with you and um, try and convince them for two
0: weeks. Let's talk about the most dedicated woman in politics, dedicated solely to Boris Johnson. Last Friday, Nadine Dorries dramatically announced her resignation. This was after it was revealed that the peerage Boris Johnson had promised her just wasn't going to happen. She made her intention to quit, very clear, though, by posting this on social media. I have today informed the Chief Whip that I am standing down as the MP for Mid-Bedfordshire with immediate effect. It has been an honour to serve as the MP for such a wonderful constituency, but it is now time for another to take the reins. With immediate effect? What does that mean? Well, perhaps not what it says, because Nadine Dorries now seems to have taken it back and remains in her position. In a series of posts, she addressed speculation on why she hasn't left yet, saying this... To put an end to this, I'm awaiting responses to my subject access requests submitted to HOLAC, Cabinet Secretary, and the Cabinet Office, where I will then take the time to properly consider the information I am provided. I've requested copies of WhatsApps, text messages, all emails and meetings of mi- minutes of meetings, both formal and informal, with names of senior figures unredacted. My office continues to function as normal and will, of course, continue to serve my constituents of mid-Bedfordshire as we have done so for the last 18 years until this time. It's absolutely my intention to resign, but given what I know to be true and the number of varying conflicting statements issued by Number 10 since the weekend, this process is now necessary. It's my intention always to go to the gym. Do I manage it? Hmm. So Doris is essentially saying to Rishi Sunak, who, remember, she called a privileged posh boy, not wrong, in her Piers Morgan interview earlier this week, that unless she gets answers, she will be triggering an unwanted by election in her own sweet time. Can't argue with that. According to number 10, saying that you're going to resign and then not doing it is, quote, very unusual. It's also a headache. John Sunak is facing by-elections in Boris Johnson's seat, as well as in the seat of former MP Nigel Adams, who, like Doris, resigned when a promised peerage didn't come through. Sunak's plan was to get those, as well as Dory's by-elections, out of the way next month. But now Doris looks like she's going to drag it out as long as she can, causing the Prime Minister, who she absolutely loathes, as much damage as possible. Sean. What does it say about our political system that someone can abuse it like this for their own personal vendettas, albeit in a very camp fashion? (laughs)
1: Oh, well, I mean, there there is something here, right? I mean, like, actually, the whole process of MPs resigning their seats is actually a constitutional convention Ie, it's actually uncodified in fact like in law i think mps are not actually allowed to stand down from the house of commons they're actually just appointed to a fake role that means that they're disqualified it's all like very historical and arcane. So there is something here about the fact that we just rely so much on constitutional conventions, i.e. uncodified, unwritten rules for the functioning of parliament and government, which basically relies on everyone behaving like a decent person with some degree of integrity. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So maybe we need to look at like actually having you know, modern mechanisms in place. The other point here is, of course, like, in principle, um, I don't really think that uh, an MP should be able to stay, you know, they've been elected by their constituents for the duration of the term of Parliament. So there shouldn't really be, they should be able to stay in post as long as they want. But of course, here, I don't know, I just think if I was a constituent in mid-Bedfordshire, well, I would just be, mid-Bedford, sorry, I would just be, I'd be annoyed. I'd be annoyed that I had voted for someone that was using, you know, clearly didn't really care about representing me, but was instead using the seat to hit back at a political enemy.
0: Now, we're going to pay tribute for a second, uh, because former Labour MP and Oscar-winning actor Glenda Jackson has died at the age of 87. Her family released a statement today announcing that Jackson passed away peacefully at her home in South East London following a short illness. Jackson was a critically lauded actor, winning awards as recently as 2018, and before she decided to enter politics, she'd already won two Academy Awards, three Emmys, and a Tony. And in 1992, she was elected as an MP for Hampstead and Highgate, and remained in Parliament for the next 23 years. Jackson's politics was socialist and rooted in her working-class upbringing. She was one of Parliament's most vocal and articulate critics of Thatcherism, the Iraq war, and policies like Tony Blair's plan to introduce tuition fees in Britain. Here's Jackson in 2013 paying tribute to the recently deceased Margaret Thatcher.
4: The basis to Thatcherism, and this is where I come to the spiritual part of what I regard as a desperate, desperately wrong track that the lead, that Thatcherism took this country into, is that we were told that everything I had been taught to regard as a vice, and I still regard them as vices, under Thatcherism was in fact a virtue. Greed, selfishness, no care for the weaker, sharp elbows, sharp knees, they were the way forward. We heard much over and will continue to hear over next week. that were broken down by baptism, the establishment that was destroyed. We can't take it. (laughs) What we actually saw, the word that has been circling around with stars around it, is that she created an aspirational society. It aspired for things as indeed one of the former prime ministers who himself had been elevated to the House of Lords spoke about selling off the family silver and people knowing under those years the price of everything and the value of nothing. What concerns me is that I am beginning to see possibly the re-emergence of that total traducing of what I regard as being the basis spiritual nature of this country, where we do care about society, where we do believe in, in communities, where we do not leave people to walk by on the other side. That isn't happening now.
0: I know this word's a bit overused, but what a powerhouse. And God, how rare is it to see MPs really just go for it in a way that I'm sitting there and going, yes, yes. Sean, how will you recall Glenda Jackson?
1: That um, that clip was a serve, wasn't it? Um, In a way that we don't really see now. And I think, um, yeah, I I mean, I I said this earlier today, is that she is also her passing does represent. I feel the death of a certain kind of parliamentary oratory that has now been lost to us what was interesting about her was that she grew up really poor and um she both entered the arts you know theater and then acting you know proceeding to an Oscar the arts in this country because of um repeated Tory policies actually going back to new labor you know you don't see actors and people successful in the arts from the UK anymore who aren't very upper middle class double barrels and um someone of Glenda Jackson's background you know maybe wouldn't be winning oscars now that's something and also the fact that you know she once said that she felt that there was a kind of continuity between her acting career and her parliamentary career because she felt that the good acting was about getting at the truth and the politics good politics was about getting to the truth which as we've discussed at length today unfortunately feels like um i don't know an aspiration for politics that has been somewhat lost but um that's how i will remember her and i hope that we will, um, you know, in the future, see people with the sort of degree of integrity and passion in Parliament that uh, Glenda Jackson displayed.
0: Thatcher's politics were aspirations of greed. Glenda Jackson's were aspirations of truth. I think that is a very fitting way to pay tribute to her. We've just got one last comment to read with a big thank you to Philip Scott, who has given us another £20 super chat. I can't tell you how much we appreciate this. Honestly, it's you guys that keep us as independent media we're not backed by billionaires. You, if you want to carry on supporting us and carry on supporting the work that we do, go to navara.media.com/support. support. There is a link in the description. Anything you have to give is amazing. One hour's wage is just everything. Um, and thank you so much, Sean, for joining me tonight and getting through an absolutely blockbuster show, I would say. Yeah, thank you.
1: I'm sweating like a sinner in church here. <laughs> um, it's been a ride, Moya. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> We've had a lot of religious references tonight. Next week, I'm going to bring some other ones. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for tuning in and all your donations and all your comments. It's such a joy to present this show to you. We'll be back here tomorrow, live from 6pm. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night.
6: This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.